Hi, and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. This week, we have a special guest, Ben Grange, who's an agent at the L. Perkins Agency in New York. His main area of focus is Kid Lit, where he's especially looking for author illustrators of graphic novels and illustrated chapter books. I'm Kristen, <laughs> and my plot twist is that I did my introduction last instead of first. <laughs> I'm Caitlin, and my plot twist is that I've been dead this whole time. Oh my gosh. <laughs> And this is Ben. I, I don't have a plot twist. That is the biggest plot twist of them all. Yeah. <laughs> Straightforward. How often did that happen? As you can tell this week, we're, well, hopefully you can tell, this week we're going to be talking about plot twists. Just a warning, we're going to try really hard not to spoil twists in popular works of fiction, but it might happen. If it does, we'll warn you. And try honestly, to. if it's been out for like 10 years, we're probably just going to spoil it. <laughs> so the way to start is what is a plot twist obviously the straight up answer is uh, a, a change of pace at the end of the story somebody a character specifically coming out as something else that they're not or that they haven't been throughout the whole story or or some some uh some mystery that that the reader's been following along the whole time and and they think they have it solved in their head and when they get to the end they find out that actually it wasn't the way that they thought it was or that the mystery wasn't who they thought it was, and, and just all sorts of twists and turns that uh, disrupt the reader's narrative flow throughout the throughout the book. I would agree with that. I think that plot twists are usually like a reversal of what you expect. Usually they, they depart from your expectations, and that's what's fun about them, because you spend, like Ben said, the whole book expecting something, and then you finally get to whatever the thing is, the big reveal, and it's not what you thought it was. Pulls the I rug out from under you. I love that feeling. Like, when I'm reading a book, and when I hit that, and I actually manage to get tricked, it's just like a glorious feeling. So, when it's done right, it can be a really radical change in the direction yeah. the story is going. When it's done wrong, like it's really bad. Yeah. Like that feel like that that feeling that you're describing is like what you live for as a reader, especially mm-hmm. as, a, as a professional in the industry. That's what you want to see in in books that that have you gripped until the end of the story. But if it's done wrong, like it can just destroy the whole story. So. Yeah, it has to be done right. A little bit of so I guess the question- banter from Ben over there. You're going to destroy <laughs> everything. <laughs> I honestly don't think that was hyperbolic at all. No, I agree. I agree. <laughs> but I guess then what we need to discuss is how you go about doing a plot twist the right way. Because I feel like there are a lot of wrong ways. So what are the key components to make it like a right plot twist or something that works well? I feel like the first thing is that it has to be set up. Um, you can't just at the end of the book say, we've been dead the whole time, because unless it's been set up and foreshadowed, it's not like a pulling a rug out from underneath the reader so much as pushing them off a cliff and maybe having them close the book. There needs to be a setup that consistently feeds details to your reader that have a different sort of explanation that then at the end of the book, you can turn around and say, no, this is actually what was happening. Yeah. For me, I always think about like the reader writer contract where anytime you open a book, the author is kind of promising you that they're going to do things that make a decent amount of sense. And for me, if you don't set up a plot twist, that reveal can feel more like, like a next step in a really bizarre dream sequence than something that actually is like amazing. And so like Caitlin and I have talked about this a lot, but for me, <laughs> 10 Cloverfield Lane didn't set it up appropriately because I hadn't seen Cloverfield. I So I was missing a key piece of the component. So I was not the right sort of viewer for that. Spoiler alert, at the end, it's an alien. You spend the whole movie thinking it's a thriller, a thriller and at the end, 
the planet's under alien attack. And they kind of set it up. Like the the main character, you just don't know whether to believe the bad guy slash good guy exactly. slash whatever or not. And he talks about aliens and nuclear attacks and a bunch of other stuff. It's just that you don't believe him because he's a crazy guy who locked her in a bunker. That's fair. That is fair. On the other hand, one that did work for me is, spoiler alert, Harry's a Horcrux, because I feel like that one was very well foreshadowed. Just to interject here, I mean, like, almost every single Harry Potter book has some sort of plot twist in it. And that's because, it's because J.K. Rowling loves to write mysteries. And that's really apparent from book one onward. She loves to set things up and have the reader ask questions, and especially have Harry and his gang ask questions throughout the entire series. That's like what it's built on is asking questions and trying to figure out who's behind what. And so, I mean, a plot twist, specifically plot twists, you'll see them most often in mysteries and stories that involve some sort of uh, discovery process. And so, I mean, you, you, they can happen in other stories like like in 10 Cloverfield Lane. I mean, I, I haven't seen it, but... Well, we just I, spoiled it for you. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> it doesn't sound like a mystery, but... You can have that sort of plot twist at the end if the if the reader or the character or or somebody involved doesn't know exactly what's going on behind the scenes. In every every detective show like Bones or iZombie or anything like that on on TV, you see so many plot twists happening because they're really easy to set up when you've got a whole mystery with lots of people involved. In cop drama, in detective shows and stories. People who read those books and watch those TV shows are expecting those things. So those things are the, are the setup that they're looking for. They want to see the red herrings. They want you to try to fool them because that's the kind of media that they consume. So they know it and they're expecting it. And if you can't deliver that, then it's already a failed plot twist. Whereas if you write like genre romance and in the end the twist is that the guy is an alien and that he's going to eat the girl, it's maybe not the best the best place to put it. Right. Okay, I would probably read that, but that would be so strange. <laughs> I'm if it's being marketed as genre yeah, romance. That would be not, not great. <laughs> the fact that there's going to be a twist is usually set up by lots of <clears throat> excuse me, lots of smaller twists that happen, like leading yeah. up to it. And you do that through um, red herrings and misdirection. Do you want to explain a little bit what a red herring is? Sure. A red herring is, I don't actually know where it comes from. What is the etymology of red herring? I mean, it's what it sounds like where you have um, all of the attention on something that looks a little bit different or it looks like it doesn't quite fit. And so it looks like the answer to the mystery that you are trying to solve. And a red herring is one that's false. It's misleading you toward um, a, co a conclusion that isn't the actual conclusion. So uh, for an example, I just read a book a few years ago called Nearly Gone, and I will write down the author in the notes because apparently I didn't write it in the outline. And there's an attack at this girl's school, and it's a mystery. It's a murder mystery, just like Ben was talking about. And um, she realizes that there were clues to this attack happening in the personal ads that day. And she reads the personal ads every single day looking for she's her dad puts stuff in the personal ads sometimes and she's looking for him or wishing that he would show up. And so the next day she reads another clue and shows up and realizes that a murder has happened and she's there at the scene of the murder. And it looks like she's the suspect. And so every day she sees a new clue and there's a new murder and she has to figure out who the murderer is so that she's not the one who gets accused of it. And that book, oh my goodness, there are so many misdirections. Every single time, all of the evidence seems to point to a different suspect. 
and they're all wrong. And as I was reading, I like to think that I can guess things like this. Like people who consume this kind of media, like Ben was saying, are trying to guess the plot twist. They're like, it's this person Mm -hmm. because it's the only person who could be it because all of the evidence is pointing everywhere else. And I seriously fell for every single one in this book. I was like, I'm way ahead of this. And then the next page, I was like, nope. (laughs) Um, Another really fun one is One of Us is Lying by Karen M. McManus. Sounds great. Um, Yeah, where there are four teenagers who are all present for this murder, and all of them have really good reasons or motive to have murdered this kid. And because it's in the POV of each of the characters, we also know that they all are trying to deflect attention from themselves, and they all do have their own secrets and stuff. And so each one, you spend a little bit of time thinking it might have been that person doing it, and each one's, well, until you figure out who it is, is a red herring. I actually just Googled uh, where red herring comes from. 1805, English journalist um, named William Cobbett. He claims that as a boy, he used a red herring to mislead hounds following a trail. That's a really good example of something you can't just figure out. It has very specific history. Yeah. I was actually going to just say that because I also Googled uh, (laughs) red herring. So, yeah. Yeah. We like a solved mystery. What can we say? And the twist is, it's real. Yeah, the twist is we both Googled. The twist is there's actually no such fish as a red herring. is a twist. Maybe that's why it's red herring, because it doesn't exist, and so all of the red herrings are things that... I'm not going to finish that thought, because I'm just going to sound even more not thought out. (laughs) I didn't know where that sentence was going. (laughs) So, So, Kristen, you wanted to talk about a series of unfortunate events, though. I don't know that this is necessarily um, related. It's just a really funny gag that a series of unfortunate events did this second season. Basically, there's a big auction going on, and everyone is trying to find the quagmire triplets who are supposedly hidden in one of the objects that's on sale. And so there's this giant statue of a red herring, like, literally it's a herring that is painted red and it's huge and it looks like you could hide two people in it maybe but it goes on sale and um it gets sold no one cares about it and then there's a huge cardboard box that has like it's like labeled like this side up and it has like obvious air holes in it and so everyone assumes that's where the kids are and so they start bidding on it but the red herring is not actually the red herring it's the box that's the red herring because the kids are in the red the red herring. It was really funny, but yeah, if I was little, that joke would have just gone like over my head. (laughs) So we, we went through a couple of other ways that we can kind of redirect when we're building a plot twist. And so one of the ones that we were talking about is planting clues that seem to be explained by or applied to something else. We could probably stick in an example. Like Sanderson is really good at this. I mean, he's, Mm -hmm. he loves plot twists and always seems to have a a solution that is completely different. Like one of my favorites, which I will not spoil is in Warbreaker where there's a twist about who the actual bad guy is. And I thought that one was really well handled. That is a good one. Mm -hmm. Or I mean, the thief is always my favorite example. And I don't want to spoil that either, but you think one of the characters is a certain type of person. And then at the end, all the clues realign and you realize he's a totally different type of person. I think that one does a really, really good job. Every book has some massive twist in it that you didn't expect. Oh, the whole series. Yeah, throughout the whole series. So the way you can go about doing that is, I guess we kind of already talked about this though, like the subtle foreshadowing, you just have to make sure all of the clues are there and that you can't put them together without like a key clue at the very end that will then present the twist. I think something that's really important to remember though, because at least for me, when I go through, if I have like a plot twist in mind, a lot of times it doesn't occur to me until later or so I'll be like really heavy handed the first time or I'll be too subtle about it. 
And so it's kind of like finding that balance where you want to make sure that you can add in foreshadowing later. It doesn't have to be perfect the first time around. Just on that note, though, I always remember what Sanderson told us about like having an unreliable narrator where if it's a first person unreliable narrator and that narrator is like withholding information from you, it's the narrator that's a jerk. But if it's like a third person, like omniscient narrator that's withholding information, the author comes off as the jerk. So it's just like being really careful about the way that that information is delivered to your readers. I think more than more than just being a jerk, it's like if your point of view character is the narrator and they're deliberately withholding information from the reader, it, I mean, I guess it can be done in some circumstances, but it's like under under what circumstances is it appropriate for that mm-hmm. character to withhold the information from the reader? If it's in their head, if the story is from their point of view, then it's just like why why keep that information from the reader? There's like in in my in my head, there's no logical explanation for that. It's true. I've seen it done though, like in um, uh, Trader's Kiss by Aaron Beatty, which just came out this last year. There is a character who is not who you think he is, who is a POV character. And I'd actually, it, it was borderline for me. Like it almost made me annoyed, but I guess it was the mystery, like figuring out who this person was, I guess. Right. So in that instance, it's like, if it's like intricately tied to a specific point of view character's personality, that's one, that's one instance where it could really work. But if it's like the entire book, if it's just one point of view, I can't see that working, really. Mm -hmm. Well, and also, that's a really good way to get somebody to put down your book, is feeling like you're withholding information just for plot purposes. And if the reader can feel that, like, that's, they're not going to keep reading. Well, honestly, I mean, that's something that I've, that I get all the time just reading the first few pages from authors, is that even if it's not a mystery, even if the, even if it's not a first person, or even if the information doesn't have to be withheld, authors will try to withhold information just to try to engage the audience and keep them interested and, and to keep them moving forward. But it actually has the opposite effect. It makes us want to put the book down. And it, yeah, that's, that's just something that I see a lot of. Speaking of things you see a lot of, what are fun plot twists that are way overdone, Ben? I mean, there are, there's always the, the, uh, the bad guy was actually the good guy. That's a, that's a really, not really overdone, but that's a done plot twist. It happens a lot, but there are other plot twists that you can, that you can do. It doesn't have to be about a bad guy or a good guy or even a character. It could be about, uh, it could be about a, uh, an object or a piece of history or something else that, that the reader or the, the character is trying to figure out. I think the plot twist that always stands out to me, if there is a missing royal mentioned in a young adult book, that missing royal is going to show up and is going to be among the main characters, undoubtedly. <laughs> yeah, that's a really common one. I don't know. I can't think of anywhere a missing royal is literally just missing. Like, uh, inevitably, it reappears. I guess that makes sense, because otherwise they wouldn't make such a big deal about it, and it wouldn't be part of the plot. That's true. Unless they died in a specific way that is relevant to the plot. I guess that relates to the idea of, like, Chekhov's gun, right? Where if you mention a detail, it could be an object or a person or something in Act 1. It's going to become important again by, like, Act 3. 
So it's, I guess it just goes along with conservation of detail. Like we don't need to know that somebody is missing unless they're going to reappear or die. Make promises (laughs) that you aren't actually going to fulfill. Another thing that we were going to talk about is twists that create more tension versus twists that resolve tension. Yeah. Just in the sixth sense, like that is, that is absolutely a resolution. Like, and it's, it goes back to that, that cliche that we were talking about is that he's been dead the whole time. I mean, sorry if you haven't seen The Sixth Sense yet, but it's just, oh, he's also dead. That's why he's seeing the dead people. And that resolves the story rather than making things worse. I think, at least for me, I can think of a lot of movies where the twist resolves stuff, especially like horror films or like suspenseful movies where like A Quiet Place, that one's really recent, but that one has a twist that resolves yeah, don't even spoil. Yeah, I haven't seen that I one yet. <laughs> I, won't, I won't say anything. Or um, an older one would be The Others, which has a twist that resolves. Or arrival. The Village. The yeah, village. The Arrival, The Village. All of these things have a twist that provides right. a resolution. Yeah. I feel um, like somebody, was it you, Kristen, said that that's just an M. Night Shyamalan thing. Oh, it totally is. Yeah. <laughs> I personally but, really like twists that escalate tension, though. Me too. Chaos Walking. I, I could talk about this series forever just because I love it so much. The ending of every book is basically a twist that escalates where like at the end of the first book, they realize that what they've been working for all along can't happen the way they want it to. At the end of the second book, instead of just facing one problem, they're suddenly facing three much more serious problems. At the end of the third book, something even worse happens. So it's just like a constant, I was not expecting this and things keep getting worse and worse and worse. And it kind of at least for me, it pulled me through and made me keep reading because I don't know, I just kept expecting something to resolve and it never did until like the very, very end. And it worked for that series. I think that's something that's employed a whole lot in series though. Like the the end of um, Catching Fire in the Hunger Games series is Mm -hmm. a big, huge twist. And um, I think that that's, it's not always a really great way to keep readers' attention going. Like if you have a twist that then leaves a cliffhanger, but it works for some people. I mean, I think Suzanne Collins did okay. So, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Just like slightly okay. But so I guess, is there a specific point at which you want your readers to be able to guess your plot twist? Should they be able to keep up with you? Do you want them to be completely like surprised? Is there like a best way to handle that? I don't think that's an answerable question because that's assuming that every reader is on the same playing field, high, high intellect or low intellect. I mean, it's it, they're if they're reading and, and they're involved in your story, no matter, I guess, how intelligent they are, how perceptive they are, some of them are going to be able to keep up with you. Some of them aren't going to be able to keep up with you. Some of them are going to try really hard. Some of them aren't going to try at all. And so... I don't really think we can answer that question with a solid yes or no answer. You want to deliver the best plot twist you can so that the people who are trying to figure it out can feel a sense of satisfaction or disappointment if they did or didn't. And for the people who aren't trying to figure it out, that they won't get completely annoyed with you once the plot twist happens. I feel like for me... So I'm going to argue with you just a little bit then. I'll go ahead. Um, <laughs> I feel like in in shorter forms of fiction, like if you're watching a TV show, a lot of times the twist, like in a, in a cop drama type of thing, usually right. is revealed like as you figure it out. Like I've been watching Psych as I've been doing the dishes for the last little bit. And those ones are always like Sean Spencer's like, I know who it is. And then you don't know until he goes and confronts that person. Right. And so you're finding out along with all the other characters, except for 
Sean Spencer, the psychic, who is not really psychic. But I feel like in books, what I really love, and this might just be me, is when I figure it out about two paragraphs before, or like the chapter before it's revealed. And so I have all of the anticipation slash like worried that that's really what's going to happen. I feel like with longer narratives, that's more like the sweet spot. But I guess you are right, though. You can't like assume that your readers are going to put that much attention or effort into your story. I mean, I just I'm not a big fan of bundling readers up into one specific group because you're going to have all types of people reading this book for all types of reasons. So some of them will, some of them won't try to keep up. That's true. And some people like being surprised and some people like, yeah, the mystery of it. For me, for me, I like to read books. And if there's like a clear mystery, then I will try to figure it out along with the detective or the character. But if it's not like a, a true mystery, if there's just some, some details, like, like for, for example, in Harry Potter, when you, I mean, you just mentioned that earlier that Harry's a horcrux. How many people actually figured that out beforehand? I'm sure some people thought of that and some people were expecting that to happen. But for me, when I found that out, I was so surprised. And I loved that surprise that if I had been like obsessed, with it, I don't know if I would have loved it as much. So I like to be genuinely surprised in stories with plot twists when I'm not actively looking for them. Well, I mean, no matter what type of writing podcast or lecture or, or class that I'm involved with, I always mention Harry Potter just because she does things so well in every single book that whenever somebody asks a question or whenever a specific topic's brought up, I'm always like, well, look at Harry Potter. Look how she did it. She did it brilliantly. So just emulate that. So now is the part where we're going to move on and talk about a particular critique. Um, quick review of how we do this. We're going to try our best to be non-prescriptive, which means that we're not going to tell you what to do. We're just going to tell you what, what sort of problems we see. Um, and we'll tell kind of what didn't work for us and maybe why. Though I will say that when we have editors and agents on, if they feel like saying, this is a problem I see consistently, don't do this. We're okay with that. That's true. Ben can be as prescriptive as he wants. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so quick summary of the submission. Leo is robbing a really high tech building in like a fantasy setting. And there's a little bit of conflict between him and his thieving buddy and you kind of find out that there's a lot of magic happening and they are probably robbing from a very powerful alchemist. One of the first things that I really liked about this is that the world building is super cool. It seems very well thought out. It's like a, it's almost like the scientific, there's obviously going to be a whole lot of background. It reminds me a little bit of the name of the wind where you have science and Mm -hmm. magic mixed together, which I'm assuming we didn't like see a whole lot of it. We've just gotten hints, but I feel like it was very well done. I wasn't overwhelmed by the amount of world building. I was just really interested to see more. I I was going to say the same thing. Like for me, the biggest thing that stands out here as a positive is the world building and the the magic and and the systems and the, the creative devices that are obviously made through this magical alchemy. I thought that was pretty creative and I liked that. Yeah, I think um, there's a lot of good examples of details serving multiple purposes. When they break in, they see trunks are painted with alchemically glowing paint. And so Leah wonders about like how much that costs. And so it tells us a lot about alchemy. It tells us about what's being stolen, about alchemy's place in the economy. So that also tells us a lot about who the character is. Exactly. Focuses on money. He's a thief. He's, he's wearing old clothes. He doesn't have a lot of money. I mean, that's a pretty good character detail there. But also we have some really great questions about him because if alchemy is so expensive, then why does he have 
this snake that is alchemy magic. How did he get it? Because he has all those questions about his partner. He's like, how does he have all of that stuff? But then he has this really advanced thing too. I could say that could be either a positive or a negative. Why don't we know this yet? I mean, obviously there we're only like five pages in, 10 pages in, and there's room for reveal later, but that could be a positive or a negative. I think where I was reading it, I was like, I assumed that either he was or his brother is an alchemist, but we don't know that yet. So yeah, if it's not answered like pretty quick, I think I would have issues with that. So I think it's really cool that Leo actually shares the senses of the metal snake that he's linked to. And then that he constantly has to remind himself what is a sense that he is feeling and what is a sense that the snake is feeling. I just think it was a nice twist on like a let me use magic to animate this inanimate object system. And I don't think I've actually seen a lot of that before. Yeah. It's always nice to see new ideas. I thought, I mean, personally, I thought that metal snake was really, really uh, well thought out. It was really cool to have this sort of familiar object that he can connect with kind of telepathically, but also it's like the snake isn't poisonous, but he puts this poison that I get, I'm assuming he made up this, this specific poison for this world. But the snake can inject venom into its into its steel things and can knock people out with it. And I mean, it was just really well put together, I thought. I really liked the back and forth between him and his partner. It's obvious that there's a lot of tension between them and that they're not, they don't actually work together very often. And they don't trust each other. And I also like the hints that we might be going up against a rival alchemist, maybe. That's what my hope is, but that's just me projecting on this story. Okay, is there anything else or do you want to move on? Yeah, let's move on to things that might need a second look. Going off of what you just said, I think even though even though this is kind of a tense moment and we're building up to a possible feud that's going to happen between this shipping company, or I don't know, was it a shipping company? It felt like it was a shipping in a warehouse with crates and boxes and things. Big, rich company and the, and these two thieves. I felt like there could have been a lot more tension throughout this first scene of, of thievery. There was a lot of the main characters getting exactly what they want and not really having much resistance. So that just seemed too easy. So I wanted more negative reactions from opposing forces. I'll actually agree with that because when the guards, these two guards first show up, Leo is so chill about their arrival and is like calmly thinking through things. And I couldn't decide if the guards were supposed to be a threat or if Leo wasn't just wasn't concerned about them. And he like goes and he hides, which made me think I should have been worried, but Leo wasn't worried. And so I wasn't worried either. I think that if, It shows that the character is really competent, but it also makes it really hard for us to see how dangerous it is, actually. And so I I agree. I would have liked to see some trifail going on here. Yeah, and we don't know a lot about who this character is, and he's like 15, right? And so he must have like uber extensive training in this magic alchemy stuff. Already by 15 to be able to do what he does in this scene. It just seemed like there wasn't enough build-up or enough backstory or enough, maybe not even backstory, but, but enough knowledge about who he was as a 15-year-old boy who takes out these two armed and trained guards. felt a little bit too convenient. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it either means that it's not actually that it's not a very well-protected warehouse, even though he tried to make it sound like it was very well-protected, or that that magic stuff is not actually that hard to pick up, which I'm not getting that vibe that that's yeah. intentional. So there's a part where the metal snake like picks the lock. And I'm not certain I really understand how that worked because I felt like I didn't know how common the link was because if all it takes to open this door is someone with a link, then it's not very secure. And I can't imagine that this super powerful company with tons and tons of money would put their stuff behind a door that wasn't very secure. 
And if it is secure, I don't get how they've broken. So yeah, so I'm totally with that. On the subject of things not really fitting, the beginning of this of the book with with Leo's partner when they're on the roof looking through this um, the skylight window. Leo's partner is is talking as if he's really really nervous about what's going to happen. But his his mannerisms and how he's holding himself. He seems super blase, super nonchalant, super relaxed, and he, he's not. His his words and his actions do not dive together, and that was bothering me. I would agree with that. I actually had an image of him like sitting on the edge of the roof, swinging his feet. I don't yeah. know if he was actually doing that, but no, but I mean, like he sounded like he was super nervous about what was going on and mm-hmm. needed to happen like immediately. But then he was acting like it wasn't super important. I agree. I think another big thing to be wary of is how much double stating there is where Leo will think something or, or there'll be something in the blocking and then Leo will state it out loud. Um, yeah. So I just think that could all just be tightened. Just like while the language is really nice and beautiful at times, it's there's just too much of it. I would completely agree with that. I think about half of my comments in this document were about sentences and paragraphs being overly wordy. Some suggestions on that is just to tighten the work, go through and delete at least 10% of your chapter and tighten the paragraphs, tighten the sentences. There are lots of just throwaway words that you don't need in your sentences. For example, the sentence structure can be varied up a lot. First page alone, like first paragraph has the the first three sentences all start with the word the, and the first three paragraphs also all start with the word the. It's really just not varied at all. So the wording the wordiness, all of that could be tightened and, and honed and fixed, just crafted. Because you want you when you send this out to an agent or an editor, you're going to want the craft to appear honed, developed, and that's like what that's what editors and agents are looking for in you know voice. That's what we want to see is is your voice coming across. And if it's just redundant and overly wordy, that's that's going to be a problem. So I guess I just had one more flag on the beginning, which is that, well, obviously we don't know which direction the story is going to go. We go from what should be a really high stakes event where there's like a lot of thievery and danger, right? To a much quieter kind of lingering conversation where we're not really certain what's going on. So my caution would just be make sure we have as much reason to care about the next scene as we have reason to care about the first scene. Though I didn't see anything really overtly that shouted red flags at me, and that's a mixed metaphor, but whatever. Just be careful setting a book in another culture, because this felt very Indian to me. And just make sure everything is made up and not based on real stuff. And you should be okay, because cultural appropriation is kind of a big deal. So, like, real religions, real figures and stuff, unless you're, like, historical, which I really don't think this is. You, need you don't to... remember the alchemy era? Oh, I, I mean, it could, well, I mean, it could be historical fantasy, but the, the names and the religions and figures and stuff didn't sound familiar. Just make sure you stay away from real stuff so you're not appropriating culture. The public service announcement from Caitlin. Yeah, that's what I say to anybody who writes about anything set in something that looks real. That's probably wise. Ben, what were you going to say? I just said I completely agree with that. Awesome. Well, is there anything else, guys? From my perspective here, I mean, you wanted me to say what were some red flags that would cause me to stop reading. I think I, I already mentioned the the varying up the language with the first few sentences and first few paragraphs. Just the things that would make me stop reading, and and mostly it's it's in the first page. Is there's this there's this paragraph where where you go from actively describing your character, like you you show me his clothes and you tell me what's happening with his clothes, 
And then you go on to describe throughout an entire paragraph the, just the rest of everything that he's wearing. And it kind of feels like just an info dump of his appearance. And so the first half of that paragraph was really good. The second half of that paragraph was just not as good as the first paragraph. So things like that tend to just like tick in my mind. And when I reach enough of those ticks, I just turn off and I say, I can't do this anymore and I'm going to reject it. So things like the the sentence structure and the varying up of the words and the wordiness and the info dumping, those all, those all just like ticked off in my head. And I probably would have stopped reading at about page two or three and not gone on. I wish I had time to read everybody's manuscripts from front to back and give them detailed critique, but that's not how this works. But other than that, I mean, I like, there were lots of things that I did like about this too. I don't want to sound like this, just not, that is just not good at all. There's, there were other things that we mentioned before that, that, that we, that we did like. So actually, as far as submissions that we get here, I felt like the world building and, um, the world itself and even like the conflict that I felt like was being set up was really, really good. I thought I agree with that completely. So don't definitely don't just abandon this and say nobody liked it on the podcast. So I'm going to definitely like take what we, take what we just said and, and revise and, and figure out what was wrong and why we didn't exactly click with it. And then revise and try again yeah that's the best advice ever revise revision (laughs) is amazing i'm so happy it's a process (laughs) i know yeah nobody writes things perfectly the first or second or even sometimes fifth or sixth time so yeah and if they do we all hate them (laughs) that is a rule in publishing you have to sign it in blood before you get in perfect All right. So I think that's all for today. Um, remember, if you'd like to submit your first chapter for us to critique, you can check out our website for details on how to do that. It's litservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash podcast. If you want to see what we look like and the awkward faces we make and the mistakes we make when we're talking, you can check out our new YouTube channel. Um, we're going to keep live streaming episodes in the future. And if you want to talk to us, you can find us on Twitter at LitService or on Facebook and Instagram at, at LitServicePodcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a star rating, interview on whatever podcast app you use. Uh, this has been LitService. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. <laughs>